thank you. Um, I'm sorry to have uh, slightly rushed that last bit, but there are questions to. I mean, Andrew, your your actual images. You know, there's sort of it's, it's another the the, the uh, conservators' images give us this whole new uh, sort of view of large canvases in these tiny, often macrographic ways. And so I'm sure that has stimulated a lot of questions. So we've got lots of meat and dust and stuff to discuss. Can I ask our our, our morning speakers to come up and? I'll take my place there, and then if you want to rehearse getting your hands up really high and waiting for a mic to arrive, um, and I'll try and pick you out. In the, and we may need to have the lights up just slightly so that I can actually see. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so now I can see... Uh, I can see people, but not necessarily hands up. So, as I say, please don't be shy. In the middle at the back? Thank you. You can be our first. Wait for the mic, please. Thank you. Um, thank you. I was just a question to Andrew about the lifting magenta. Can you um, give some information on why it's lifting? Oh, um, two points. The point about the, um, the, um, the, the support, so the canvas, uh, this is Bacon's point, that it doesn't, uh, well, he talks about the tooth of the canvas holding pastel well, but in this case, paint. So the smoothness of it and the way he paints it, it hasn't held very well. And the third of those photomicrographs showed that it was obviously damaged it was obviously flaking and he'd repainted it. So it was obviously, a, 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 as it were, an inherent problem. Uh, so the, the first point is that the, the surface itself was, didn't have the grip, if you like, uh, but probably more important, oh, and then it, that was exacerbated by this use of pastel fixative, which, um, and as you know, the pastel is an unbound material, so it's just powder sitting on uh, canvas or paper usually and the fixative just sort of sticks it to the, to the support. But often it's, um, the problem is that it will dry itself and become a sort of solid uh, film, which can then crack in itself and it sort of cuts and lifts and pulls the paint with it, and this is what's happened in this case. Is that okay? Thank you, there's another question here, four rows up in the middle. Um, Andrew, you, uh, we discussed the, um, Francis's response to why he glassed mm -hmm. over the work, um, but you've not mentioned anything about his choice of gold leaf, that specific profile framing. Do we oh, know anything about that? I, th I think Tony answered that in, in his paper about this, the sort of the, the grandeur of it, if you like, or the, that it was an old master. Sorry. Um, oh, sorry, didn't you hear my, the previous answer? Yeah, well, it was okay with him. Slipped from the mic a little. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I think Tony answered that and can answer that better than I. Tony, would you like to? Just very uncharacteristic of the period when people were, you know, um, wanting kind of immediacy of the canvas, unframed usually. Um, but for him, I mean, he said, you know, I mean, it's either the National Gallery or the rubbish dump for me. <laughs> and uh, he got the National Gallery sort of. <laughs> Well, I, I think 
I think there was an aesthetic element, but I think what Tony has just said isn't just aesthetic. It's this question of status, if you like, you know, grand art. Uh, what I didn't get around to mentioning is that I did ask him about um, influences on his technique, thinking very much to start with about Roy Demester. Uh, but he didn't want to know about it. He didn't want, to be, he didn't want to, any connection to be made between him and Roy Demester, who, in, quite frankly, in London is a lesser-known Australian painter. He just said Picasso. He just wants to be associated with Picasso. And Rembrandt. <laughs> no, but that glass thing was interesting because, um, you know, David Sylvester was trying to get Francis to talk about the Duchamp connection, and he thought it must be the large glass. Um, and I, I'm not convinced by that at all, and certainly Francis denied it. But I mean, he's perfectly capable of denying something that was absolutely right. Uh, I mean, and, and it's very interesting um, that like with Demestre, well, no, <laughs> but with Demestre, you know, um, clearly there's um, some form of residual impact there. And although he sort of never talks about him, um, Martin found evidence that as late as 1962. He'd helped Demestra with a commission in a church in Hounslow or something. Mm -hmm. um, so he was, you know, remained in a sense indebted, but would never say so. Uh, yes, we have a question about five rows from the back on the, um, the right as I look at it. Uh, good afternoon, thank you. Um, I'm just interested to know a little bit more about the, the glassing. Uh, there's Francis Bacon's on the one hand, and of course, uh, Brett Whiteley's on the other. They have a curious similarity in that Brett's paintings are so often framed with beautiful gold frames, um, but they are glassed. And, and similarly with um, Francis Bacon's who are beautifully framed and glassed. The, the question I have for you is a, a, an advice in general question, uh, which is, um, is it better to frame than not to frame um, so many Great paintings seem to be unframed, but uh, for a conservator's point of view, presumably framing and glassing will certainly protect the painting for longer and better. Is that correct? Yeah, from a, a purely conservation and preservation point of view, it's excellent. That's the point I was trying to make, that the, the canvas, he, he paints on a, a surface which on the back of it has this wonderful barrier. I mean, it needn't be primed. He could have used just unprimed canvas uh, but he didn't. He used primed canvas stretched back to front. So that's an important distinction. Uh, and then to have more a sort of solid barrier of glass in front and a backing board as well as this, it's excellent from a conservative's point of view. Uh, but with Whiteley, there's no coincidence there. Um, he, Brett Whiteley, knew Bacon's work very well. And as I say, my first visit to this gallery, there was the, the, the Lucien Freud-owned uh, painting, um, I saw the first thing I saw was a, a Brett Whiteley, and I thought it was a, I thought it was a Francis Bacon. It was exactly the same. The canvas was the same. The frame was the same. The only difference was that Brett Whiteley had started painting on the glass, and I thought, oh no, that's another sort of level of prob problem for the for the poor, boring conservator. But Brett was in and out of the studio um, at Rees Mews quite a lot, um, particularly in the eighties. Um, but I mean, in terms of painting generally of that period. I mean, think about Colourfield painting, for example. Um, the whole thing about those paintings is that, you know, they occupy the field of vision and, and theoretically 
um, often they have an extended field beyond the canvas. So putting a frame on was kind of impossible conceptually. Um, so that was, that was sort of what was happening in parallel that saw the death of the frame for a long time. Um, but I have to say, those, um, a lot of those paintings were painted on cotton duck, not on Belgian linen, which is kind of white canvas, uh, and saturated in with acrylic paint, which means that the slightest touch on the surface leaves a mark and the thing's ruined, really. It's a big challenge for conservators, I think. We, I mean, that wonderful midnight blue Michael Johnson in this collection um, is not what it was. <laughs> Came to the gallery that way. Just a, another point on the cotton duck too. I mean, the, the liberation for artists of cotton duck is that it came in huge sizes. So again, that was a consideration in the framing of them or not framing them. Yep, plenty of questions. We'll have to take, I think, um, there's a couple in the middle around the front here, then we'll go right to the back uh, in a second. Uh, I... <clears throat> Um, I might have missed something, but uh, could you explain why Graham Sutherland was in a position to be spraying adhesive on the vacant painting? Well, um, actually, when, when Francis arrived in London, and he very quickly teamed up with de Maistre, and they'd lived together for a while. Um, and Sutherland was a part of that circle. Um, and I think Francis used to go and stay in Monton, a house that uh, Sutherland had when he was down in Monte Carlo and so on. So they were, you know, they were part of a circle and they'd have been around the studio. And in fact, if you go to Cardiff, uh, there's some wonderful display cases full of correspondence. It's a sort of Sutherland room um, with, with Francis, with that awful handwriting, which I have to say, in, they've actually translated it into English, as it were. Um, but it's not, it's not right. When you actually struggle with the handwriting, you find that it's not quite saying what what they say he's saying. Anyway, um, but so there was that strong connection. So he was around I and mean, it wasn't, wasn't difficult that an, uh, particularly in the early days that he might have um, accepted, because that's 46, remember? So it's quite early days and he hasn't established his, uh, his techniques which come into focus in the 60s particularly. In, in Barbara's area too, I, he sent him a bottle of gin so at one stage, so we're back into the... Yeah, yeah. I think he did borrow quite a bit from... Um, Graham Sutherland certainly helped Francis in his career at, at, at one stage, there's no doubt about that. William de Kooning says a great thing. He says, great artists steal, mediocre artists copy. I think we'll go to the back and then back to the front. Okay. Question to Barbara. Um, could you tell us the, um, the story a bit more about the archaeologists um, cataloguing the um, studio, and also I would imagine a studio like that would have had some sort of smell. Were you able to recreate <laughs> that smell? Well, um, um, the studio, or I'm giving a talk on next Wednesday on the studio. Um, we, when, it's quite long, so I'm gonna try and keep this short. Um, when I, I became director of the Hulane, I was looking for a catalyst for this very interesting gallery that had probably fallen behind in terms of its position, both locally or nationally, and certainly internationally. And I suppose, you know, what do you look for? Certainly a great collection, perhaps, but they were kind of rapidly disappearing. Some great 
uh, exhibitions, just something to really move it on. So my idea was that we would do a great Francis Bacon exhibition. And believe it or not, I was just talking to Michael earlier, in 1998, Francis was not a prophet in his own land. The cheapest Francis Bacons were in London. And in fact, in 1998, I remember seeing that you could buy a Francis Bacon, small Francis Bacon for £100,000. They were making a lot more in New York, Paris, anywhere else. So I got to meet John Edwards, and then I thought I'd get an exhibition of John Edwards' Bacons. And anyway, then we went to the studio. And then I advised John Edwards that he should keep the studio intact, relocated intact, because it was the only way that it would work um, in, at the end of the 20th century. Um, then he turned around, having me waxed lyrically about how, what he should do. He said, well, would you like it for Dublin? And I went, oh, my God. Okay, uh, that was sort of... So I thought then that it's certainly not what a director looks at for usually. So the only way to do this uh, was to absolutely try and relocate this and make some sense of it as the years rolled out, rather than coming in with interpretation. I think it was Diego Rivera's studio, tragically, was thrown into lots of boxes and thrown out. People's studios, um, you know... Um, Delacroix Studios, Too Perfect, Palazzi Studios, it doesn't work as a studio. So um, the only way to do it was to ask the archaeologists, first of all, would they excavate it in a certain way that they could put it back together again? Now, they do put things back, but they never put things back. So that was where the archaeologists came in, and they excavated the studio for us. The curators literally, we have handwritten, it was very low-tech, literally catalogued everything, and then everything was moved to Dublin, including the walls, the floors, the ceiling. And that's where, so that's where the drawings come in. At the time, we weren't sure what we needed. We have a, we have a an catalog number for every single item, including the dust, and we did take a lot of dust with us. Um, and the clothes, there were cashmere jumpers, corduroy trousers, and dressing gowns. I want to come back to, to Andrew. And so we brought it all to Dublin, and then we inputted everything on a database. And I said, as I said, as least interpret, I didn't, nobody could say that, that's not important, that's not important, that drawing's important. Nobody was allowed to do that because nobody knew. So this, everything had the same weight. And it started with the archaeological drawings, and that's what's rolling out even 12 years later, or whatever it is now, yeah, 13 years later. Oh, the smell. It's absolutely the only way you can tell a fake uh, studio item from a, uh, from a real one is that wonderful smell of paint and terps that you get in an artist's studio. And you can still smell it in the, in the archive rooms in the Hugh Lane. Sorry if that was long-winded. <laughs> we'll have to move on fairly rapidly. Sorry, as we have fairly, quite a few to get through till lunch. I may not get to everybody, but we can come back this afternoon for... Uh, this is just a brief question about the um, Sundela Sun board that you mentioned, the earlier works. Was that made specifically for artists to work, or was it something like Masonite, which was an industrial-style board popular at the National Art School here in the 60s? Yeah, it, the latter. It, was, um, it wasn't made for artists. It was, um, it was about half an inch thick fibre board. It would have been used on uh, walls, um, whatever else, so like masonite. Um, so similar to masonite, was it? It, it? It's softer. It's mm -hmm. thicker. Masonite I would describe as about a quarter of an inch thick, and it's an oil that's wood pulp fibres uh, pressed together. There are different types. But the, the best is the uh, pressed together with linseed oil. 
you know, it's sort of heat heat pressed. So that's very, and as you know, it's got a very smooth side and a rather and rough a, side and a toothy side. Uh, Sunday leboards are thicker, more fibrous. You could actually sort of scrape it off with your fingernail. And, and is it acid free? No, not at all. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> a conservator's nightmare. Well, yeah, but it's well. That's why it's not being lent. But it's not not really night. You know, kept in behind the glass. Uh, in good conditions, it'll it'll go on for a, a long while yet. But would the Met one? Um, that was canvas. The Met. Oh no, the Met. It's a uh, on board. Oh, sorry, I was thinking MoMA. Yeah. Um, the, the head one from forty-seven, forty-eight. Yeah. And you borrowed the, the other one. The the study is Sunday Labord. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Same stuff. Yes. And okay, and the paintings by Roy Demester. He was using it again. That's why. We know there's a link, but uh, as we said earlier, Bacon didn't, didn't want a bar of it. In order to let everyone have some lunch, I'm going to just take, I'm afraid, two more questions. This uh, lady with the mic tantalisingly poised, and then one down here, and then we'll leave the rest till this afternoon, I think. I just have a question for Barbara. It was, um, when your team were excavating the Reese Muse studio, what was the most exciting revelation for you that came up from it? Um, there were... There were, there were quite a few, but that painting, the dappled carpet painting that we found was really exciting. Um, uh, as you see in the photographs, there's a lot of canvases that are there, stretched, primed on the wrong side, and then some of them prepared, which, uh, some of them were spray-painted, it looked like spray paint, or that they were all orange or something, but finding that was absolutely fantastic because it's just so revelatory. Thank you. And uh, last question down here. Well, this is a question, but the question comes at the end. I was interested in your saying that he said great artists steal. Or did he say it? No, I just said William de Kooning said uh, it. William de Kooning. But the thing was, I suppose I find it um, strange that with an artist who is so in your face and, you know, his meat and all this, that that uh, that we don't look, we, none of you are looking at this. And, um, you know, he stole uh, this guy Dyer's balls, the thief's balls, and then the Dyer steals his glory at the eve of his first retrospective. Um, and what about books on... on um, Bacon from the point of view of the psychoanalytic point of view, because I think we find him so exciting because he deals with our guts and with, you know, the stuff that, you know, really gets at us. So I'm just wondering, do you, can you mention any books about him from a personality point of view? Well, Ernst, Ernst well, what's Ernst's book called? The um, Ernst Bernalton's book, what's that called again? Um, he, he's a text in the catalogue, hasn't he? He's kind of psychoanalytical about the male psyche. <laughs> no, because I couldn't really hear it. Oh, I, mean, that's, that's I think it. we're asking about what's been so, written on Bacon yeah, as, as a, yeah. and the sort of conflict that his work dramatizes, sexual, uh, violent. Uh, uh, Ernst van Alpen's book, I can't remember. Look, there's lots of, yeah. um, I mean, there's three yeah. biographical books, the most salacious of which, of course, is uh, Daniel Farson's. Um, and so there's a lot about the life. Um, I, I was at pains, actually, to move away from 
an exhibition about the narrative towards the facture of the work, because I think, you know, we put it together that way so that you'd actually be looking more at the painting. But the story is always there, and if I'm doing a guided tour, you know, the, uh, obviously, um, we didn't have a room of men in dark suits, which the Tate had um, in the last show, but um, the men in dark suits were assignations um, when Francis, um, in the early days in particular, didn't have much money, he'd pick up a bloke and go to a hotel somewhere. I mean, he said he did a bit of whoring, a bit of petty thievery, whatever it took, or off to Monaco to make a few bob on the wheel. But, you know, I mean, and, and those, it's represented in these strange furtive men that crop up in those paintings, for example. Um, but that, that's another kind of reading the biography onto. Yeah. But in a sense, though, I'm, I'm not, I think I may have to, because it's lunchtime, I may have to slightly, but I, I, I think after lunch we're going to hear uh, in at least uh, two different ways uh, work which connects uh, Bacon's work to a sort of wider history of both gender and, psycho and, and uh, the making of sex, if you like. So I think if we can hold you till after lunch, you may find some of your questions addressed there. Meanwhile, can I thank our morning speakers again very much? And can we be back sharp at 1.45? And I promise you there's a more lengthy question time at the end of all of the papers. We can return to these massive issues. <laughs>